0: I was told this would be a short work week. Did you hear something about that? I, I thought they said this week would be, it's only It's only Wednesday. So far, it doesn't seem short. We'll get back to you. Uh, hey, welcome to our show. Jack Riccardi at 550 and 1071 KTSA. This is the Jack Riccardi Show. We're underway. We're live here right now on the radio. And you can join the show at 210 599 55. Um, if you miss any of the show or you want to hear it again, it's also available as a podcast on demand. Go to KTSA.com. I guess we should be uh, looking on the bright side that President Biden showed up for the Medal of Honor ceremony uh, because he's been not showing up to a lot of stuff. But anyway, they had a, a ceremony uh, yesterday at the White House to honor a Vietnam War veteran Captain Larry Taylor, um, and uh, it looked like a very respectful and, you know, meaningful moment. It, it I think it matters that we're recognizing Vietnam veterans even belatedly because that's really the war, uh, of all wars, that's really the war where we did the most disservice to the men that served in it. So they're having this ceremony. This should be easy for President Biden. He's He's been vice president. He's done these before. He's been in Washington a long time. Um, and you've probably seen the video by now. I'm not going to play it because it really doesn't translate on the radio. But the president just leaves the ceremony. He fastens the Medal of Honor around uh, Captain Taylor's uh, neck. And then he he just walks off. It's not over. It's not even near over and um it's really the fastest exit he's ever made since since Afghanistan um what do you think is going on here i i mean i know the, the jokes make themselves i could make them you could make them um but i think we need to start being a little more specific uh about what we what we think we're seeing because when i hear people say uh, age, and uh, age is an issue. This was a big talking point on cable today. Age may be an issue. Um, Captain Taylor is 81. He looked fine. You probably know someone in your life who is the president's age, give or take. They're fine. It's not age. We don't all turn into... Joe Biden when we when we hit a certain age. And as people have pointed out, many callers have pointed out over the years, Joe Biden was Joe Biden way before he got to be old Joe Biden. He just walked off. And then the other thing that was strange to me... So, you know, people have speculated maybe he needed to go to the bathroom or something, was there an emergency... But he did not excuse himself as a president might do, where he would say, "Folks, I hope uh, let me let me beg your forgiveness, and I mean no disrespect to the attendees. Uh, I have pressing business. Please continue to enjoy the White House." You know, there there was a way to, to extricate himself while paying tribute to the fact that the event was still going on. He didn't do that. I mean, maybe he just had to go, so to speak. Maybe he doesn't give a bleep. <laughs> I mean, you know, i if you're not held accountable, if no one's going to hold your feet to the fire, most politicians won't do it by themselves. you You can't count too many times when politicians have held themselves accountable. The only way it really ever works is when they're forced into it. And he knows now, and the people around him know, that he won't be. By the way, what is up with the people around him? Because that's a fail for the staff, too. I mean, like, if he's just confused, if he's really muddled and puttin' headed and and doesn't know, and that's certainly a plausible theory, then the staff needs to be better at this than they are. Kamala Harris is representing the United States in Indonesia at an international summit. She was interviewed about President Biden. And she thinks she's going to be able to tell this story. She thinks this is what people will believe about Joe Biden. Cut number three.
1: First of all, let me say that our president has been an extraordinary leader who has accomplished things that previous presidents hoped and dreamed and promised they would do and did not achieve. So, yes, I see him every day a substantial amount of time we spend together is in the Oval Office where I see how his ability to understand issues and weave through complex issues in a way that no one else can to make smart no and important else. decisions on behalf of the American people have played out.
0: No one else can do it. Like, like no, I will give her credit. I, I, does, I do think he weaves. I think there's a lot of weaving, um, meandering and, and wobbling as well. But, uh Yeah. Um, Does she think anybody's buying that? Does she think we've never seen him? And, by the way, uh, Madam Vice President, do you, by any chance, remember leaving this little thing behind, cut number four?
1: In this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take Mm -hmm. it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a, a requirement that all my special agents right, would so wear body. Cam-
0: I guess at that point he was not weaving through complicated issues, um, and he's standing there blinking like Stan Hardy. Um, I mean, just you know, completely gobsmacked by her attack. Tell me, tell me that he chose her. His decision not imposed on him, not put to him. He chose her to be his running mate after that. Please, please convince me that that happened. So anyway, um, it's, it's not just age, but we do have an age problem. Nikki Haley says something really smart about this. She says that the U.S. Senate is the most privileged nursing home in the United States. And she points out that Mitch McConnell has done some great things and he deserves credit, but it's time to leave. It's a good line. Most privileged nursing home in the United States. Um, Peter Ducey asked uh, KJP at the uh, White House press briefing why they treat the president like a baby. Why does the White House staff have to baby Joe Biden? Cut number one. Thank you, Kareen. President Biden is the oldest president in U.S. history. Why does White House staff treat him like a baby?
2: No one treats the President of the United States, the Commander in Chief, uh, like a baby.
0: So there's this book that says, That's ridiculous. ridiculous back, what sounded like a call for regime change in Russia. The the President, uh, quote, rather than owning his failure, he fumed to friends about how he was treated like a toddler. Was John Kennedy ever babied like that?
2: So look, uh, I'll say this. Um, There's going to be a range, always, a range of books uh, that are uh, about every administration, as you know. Uh, that's going to have a variety of claims that is not unusual that happens all the time and we're not going to litigate those here that's something that we're not going to uh speak to there is one thing that i do want to because i think i was asked this question last week by one of your colleagues about this particular excerpt uh, that they uh, were referring to and so i'll say this you know we did see the excerpt, excerpt go, the context uh, of the excerpt, and it seemed to be making the opposite overall point about how the value. Of his experience and wisdom resulted in rallying the free world mm. against authoritarianism, which is important. We have seen this; you all have seen this, and she passage of the most the, historic agenda in recent history. kicked into the uh, binder
0: now, right? Handling
2: a foreign policy like rallying mm. the world around Ukraine, as you just heard from our national security national security advisor, who laid out in really good questions that your colleagues asked about how the president is moving forward about Ukraine, uh, about Unlike kind of leading into these conversation Peter. that he's going to be having at the. G20. Why do you think it
0: is? All right, there? so um, here, here's my here's my premise and I want to see what you think. And phone lines are open at 210-599-5555. Yes, he's old. And he's not making a good argument for 80-year-old presidents, even though again, I think letting him hide behind the word age is kind of unfair. He is particularly and uniquely inept. He was inept way before he got old. He was adult, he was a bragger, he was a liar, he was a plagiarizer, and that started when he was way younger than I am now. So I, I don't think we should just throw you know, the age label around, but there is an age problem in politics. Now, here, here's my premise. The Republicans are not going to defeat him because he's too old. People aren't going to throw him out of office because he's too old. Have we ever had an election? Can you think of an election where we we uh, defeated a, an incumbent president because he was too old? Uh, have we, in fact, don't we only throw presidents out of office when we are miserable and we connect our misery with the president? Fairly or unfairly, truthfully or not, Herbert Hoover wasn't old. He could plausibly have been reelected to a second term, but we were in the middle of the Great Depression. We were in the middle of the worst economic disaster in American history, or at least modern American history, and people were miserable. And it wasn't like Herbert Hoover wasn't doing anything. In fact, he was doing a lot of the same things FDR would do when he took over, but people connected their misery to Herbert Hoover. They even called it Hoover's Depression the reason they called it that was because the opposition party made sure to connect people's misery to the incumbent president whether he was to blame for it or not isn't the point you could plausibly argue that herbert hoover had very little to do with the events that crashed the stock market in october nineteen twenty nine it happened on his watch but it was not like he ordered it up like you'd order an omelet so the republicans have to connect how people think things are going and how they feel about things in their lives. Actual stuff, your kids, your community with Joe Biden. He's not going to lose because he's too old. He's not going to lose because he's walking around and wandering out of ceremonies and doesn't know where to exit the stage and shakes hands with the air. And that—that that isn't. Those are all interesting things to look at. Those are not going to decide this election. He was old when we put him in. People are capable of doing the math. He is exactly the age now we thought he would be four years ago or three years ago. So it's not that. It's going to have to be that connection. And the media aren't going to make that connection. They're going to, as we talked about yesterday, they're going to be very careful to make sure no one connects him to any of that. So that's that's the, that's the job of the Republicans up and down the ballot. But the age thing is not how, how you defeat him. I don't think, you tell me. 210 599 55. There's a couple other interesting things I saw today. Um, this is a story that's getting some traction this week. An increasing number of incidents involving Chinese nationals sometimes posing as tourists, attempting to access sensitive U.S. sites, military bases, rocket sites, even the White House. Uh, there was, according to the Wall Street Journal, a a meeting of federal agencies last year to figure out how to limit these incidents from occurring. That sounds strong. What can we do? There have been as many as 100 such incidents in recent years, according to the Wall Street Journal. These gate crashers range from Chinese nationals found uh, driving across a missile range in New Mexico to what appeared to be scuba divers swimming in murky waters near a rocket launch site in Florida. And they believe these are attempts to test the security at these locations. I I I don't know what they're doing about this. Maybe they're doing something more substantial than it sounds like. I do know there is no clearer indication of where things are going with China than this. Th- this is only what you would do as a prelude to a sneak surprise Attack, And it doesn't have to be a conventional military attack. But there's only one reason you do this kind of thing. And you don't do it because you're a competitor or a rival or a a trade partner. 210-599-5555. There's also an interesting story. We'll get into this. There is a company called Flannery Associates. Nobody knows hardly anything about it. It's a Delaware company. They have spent a billion dollars buying up approximately 50,000 acres of land right adjacent to and near Travis Air Force Base in California since 2018. And the company has a lot of interesting people in it. It's got Steve Jobs' widow. It's got some other tech people. The theory is that they're going to build a... um, a factory town. They're gonna build like a tech factory town where you will uh, work for company X, uh, company X will build your house, company X will govern that town, and you will be a citizen of basically their, you'll be a subject of their rule. And this is not a new idea, this goes back to the days of mining towns and company towns and stuff like that. Uh, but I want to get into that a little bit. I want to know what you think about uh Biden age, other explanations, what went on at that Medal of Honor ceremony. We'll also uh uh get into the um the China story a little bit There's a big dispute going on between um a company called Charter, which is the biggest or i'm sorry the second biggest uh cable company in the country, and they own Spectrum, which is the cable outfit here in town uh so the the dispute is between Charter and Disney, which owns a bunch of channels, uh, including ESPN, and of course, other Disney channels, and FX, and other things. So anyway, as a result, if you're a cable customer, you can't get any of those, you can't get ESPN, you can't get any of those Disney-owned channels right now. They're feuding back and forth publicly. We have a guest coming on in about eight minutes is gonna explain what this is all about, and uh, we'll see where this is going. In the meantime, uh, what about uh, Biden and uh, the issue of age? I, I, I think it's legit to bring up. It's right in front of us. But it's not going it, it, this is not how you defeat him. This is not how Republicans are going to win back the presidency. Joe is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Joe, good afternoon.
3: Hey, good afternoon, Jack. Pleasure to speak with you on this uh, balmy day in Texas. Uh, as far as Biden goes... Uh, He's definitely impaired. I mean, a blind man could see that because even though a blind man can't see, he can hear. And it's obvious he's impaired. But I don't know if age is really it because I think of Betty White. And in her 90s, she's doing movies mm-hmm. and TV right. commercials and, and very SNL, cognitive, yeah. very bright. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, age is not per se the issue. It's it's more can- think well so. and and this is what this is what I'm trying
0: to say, and you you said it very well joe if we if we just chalk it up to age, then you are allowed to sort of feel sorry because age is something that happens to all of us, but as you point out, and I think you use the word impaired, that's the right word. there's something medically wrong with the man, and we're pretending this is not happening, and by we, I mean the corporate media and the democratic party, and th- that's the issue not not the number but the the stuff we're seeing. And pretending is okay but 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 furthermore Joe even if all that's to be said Republicans are gonna have to win the presidency he's not gonna lose it because he's too old
3: Oh, no doubt no doubt and 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 they better fix this uh, I call it rigged election I mean the way it happened last time where you could just uh, willy-nilly count votes 25 days after the polls closed because of COVID I mean if that happens again the Republicans right. can't win right. no matter what they right. do. But That's I would right. like to say one thing, if if, you, if you'll if you allow me a, a minute. Well, be very okay? quick because I'm way over here. I will. I will. I will. I, uh, I went to school in California. I went to elementary school, junior high and high school. I'm 73 years old, and it was integrated. There was no segregation. So I don't know how old Camilla Harris is, but – I don't think there was segregation when she was in school in California. Yeah. I just She's not talking about segregation.
0: She's talking about forced busing where they would take, uh, kids from a, because I grew up in a, in New England and there wasn't, there wasn't a, a segregation there either, but they would take kids from a primarily black school or district, bus them to, over to the white school uh, or district and vice versa. Uh, so what it did was it made the schools look more balanced. That's the
3: way they, they did the integration, then in other words.
0: Partly. I mean, integration happened first because it was no longer legal to segregate by race. That was Uh the Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. But then when that did not achieve visible results fast enough, they were doing the busing. The busing was really hard on the kids. It was really hard for a kid. I I watched this in my own school. A a young uh, third-grade black boy walks in. He knows nobody. He's by himself. And they're putting him in that situation only to make things look better, only to make the adults feel better. I think that's wrong. Yeah. And her argument yeah, with was him was wrong. about it whether that's wrong. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah, i I'm, I wasn't even aware of that uh, yeah. when I went to school yeah. out in California. I didn't even know that yeah. was happening. So, yeah. Okay. Well, no, thanks it, for, uh, chatting thank you, with Joe. Me.
0: Thank you for the uh-huh. call, Nook. Good to hear from you. And uh, yeah, I, I. And that's something we can we can certainly get into um, another time. Um, like a lot of things, when politicians don't deliver or see results they had promised, they will just fudge and cook the books to make it look like they're doing a better job. That's what the border is right now. And, um, yeah, busing, busing was rough. Busing was rough on, on kids. It was rough on families. Um, and it was, a, it was a terrible idea, not because it put black and white kids together. It was a terrible idea because of how it did that and the forcible nature of it. The people that opposed it were not always great people either. Okay, there was a lot of opposition to it that was strictly racist and racialist, but um, yeah, it was, I, uh, the reason I played that clip from her is simply to point out that um, she's had his number for a long time, and if she thinks she can now say he's masterfully weaving through the issues, I don't think anybody's buying that. Uh, this just came down, a federal judge in Austin Uh, has set back Operation Lone Star, ordering the state to remove the waterborne barriers almost immediately, uh, within a week. Uh, They have to be out of the water. In the meantime, the state is expected to appeal, and this is going to keep on going through the court system. We'll talk about that. As I mentioned, um, college football had a great uh, season number one, uh, I mean, weekend number one of their new season, and as a fan of college football, I watched a lot of it last weekend. Maybe you have been uh, following your favorite sports. Maybe you've noticed, if you are a Spectrum Cable customer, that ESPN is not available, and wondered why that is. Uh, so we turn to our next guest right now to talk about this, this struggle, this battle, this feud, uh, between a company called Charter, which owns Spectrum Cable, and the Disney channels, uh, which include, but are not limited to, ESPN. Adam Raziri has been on with us before. He's the co-founder and chief marketing officer of Agency Partner Interactive, a digital marketing firm in Dallas. And Adam, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon to you.
4: Hey, good afternoon. Great to be with you, Jack.
0: So we live in a world now of cable and dish and streaming, and we have companies that, that are in both worlds. We have companies that Disney, for example, obviously uh, operates in the traditional TV channel world, but also operates in the streaming service world. So what what are these two titans fighting over? And what's it mean to me, the customer, who's just trying to, you know, catch an SEC game on a Saturday?
4: <laughs> right. Well, you know, there, there's definitely kind of a, a short-term thing going on here and then also a long-term vision. And in the short term right now, these companies are really just bickering over over licensing dollars uh, trying to obviously get the best deal, and you know, for anybody that also has subscribed to, you know, a, a distribution model from YouTube TV, for example, uh, on occasion you'll see a, a streaming banner at the top or bottom of your screen indicating that one of the uh, one of the content providers is, you know, up to renew their contract, and they're asking their users to basically put some pressure on the content providers to uh, ensure that service remains, you know, kind of. Uh, Frictionless, right? And in in, in a nutshell, get them to kind of bend and and uh, accept perhaps a financial deal that isn't quite as favorable as they would prefer. And of course, as as anybody in business knows, a good deal typically leaves both sides wanting a little bit. Uh, Now, in respect of the short term, you know, I I think it's a money game right now. Obviously, we're seeing Charter and Disney kind of bickering over what uh, what the content is worth. And in respect of linear TV, you know, just our traditional television that, that we all got through cable. Uh, we're now at a time where less than half of Americans actually turn to linear TV mm-hmm. or traditional cable TV for content and, and people are increasingly moving towards streaming. And, and that's what I think we're seeing these two companies kind of reckoning with uh, looking at the long-term picture here. So Charter is saying, well, you know what, if we can't work out a good deal with Disney, we're just going to potentially abandon traditional cable and, and move really closer towards the future, which is becoming increasingly more apparent in our faces every day being a streaming model, one that offers Mm -hmm. more personalized content, uh, not just personalized content, but also ability to, you know, watch your your, your college football when you want to watch it. Maybe, you know, maybe you had to go to church on a Sunday and and you weren't able to watch your program, or maybe you had dinner or or work or what have you. Uh, It'd be nice to watch the content that you want to watch when you're able to watch it. And obviously the linear TV model does not offer that. Um, you know, I'm I'm a I'm one of the older millennials, so I'm kind of on that that generational cusp. So I remember having a VCR and having to record right. uh, linear TV to a VHS so I could watch programs later on. And now, as we see uh, new generations coming into the market, obviously the uh, the kids today, right? I have a, I have an 11 month old son. He's already interacting with with digital screens and devices, <laughs> and we're just going to see just a really quick move towards streaming yeah. in general. And linear could be dead within the next five to ten years. As do well, Netflix I noticed that to, uh,
0: to use your term linear, I noticed that some of these, uh, like Disney, has said they can see a day when um, all their linear programming or TV programming will be available to streaming subscribers. Right now, they th- these guys all separate out. You know, um, right. So if if that's what's happening with them, what is happening with companies like Spectrum and Comcast, because they also want to be, as you pointed out, streaming companies. They need to figure out That's what their right. future is. So um it almost looks to me like Disney wants to be more of what the cable company is now and the cable company wants to be more of what Disney Plus or uh a streaming <laughs> service right. is now.
4: You've got a you've got a crystal ball there. I, I think you're exactly right. Um, and that's kind of, you know, the, the interesting paradox here, right? You're talking about content producers and then also the distribution channels. And they kind of want what the other ones have already. Um, at, at a certain point, those entire things just kind of consolidate into one. Yeah. And, you know, you, you could in the in the future, you might see a charter that starts to buy up a lot of the content uh, production houses um, the same way Disney has. Right. I mean, uh, Disney has been buying up uh, channel after channel and trying to basically uh, turn their their viewers into obviously app subscribers, right? And uh, I mean, basically, know, those channels that. are
0: now marketing platforms, right? I mean, those channels are important because that's how you tell people who have not yet converted that that's what they need to do. If you're not in that space where the you said it's under fifty percent, but the remaining people are probably kind of hardcore. You know, they're they're probably very very happy. I mean, I, I know for myself. I, I like the one-button convenience of cable, you know? I mean, I I you know, like that. And... I do,
4: too. Well, I, you know what I also like about cable? And I also, I, I like this about traditional media in general, but frankly, it allows access to newer and maybe lesser-known um, producers of content and people mm-hmm. that maybe don't have quite as big a following. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of... For a while, it's been sort of a, sort of a launching pad for people to get a bigger digital following, uh, simply because of the old school credibility of being on TV, right? Um, and so, but obviously too, you know, you have YouTube now and other digital uh, content distribution outlets that kind of offer that same level of of access. But there's something about the credibility of traditional that has, I think, helped a lot of those who have created a name for themselves to this date. Uh, moving forward, obviously with the Gen Zs, I mean. They're a different animal, and, and when it comes to sports viewing entirely, I mean, the entire sports industry is still figuring out how to deliver that younger customer the kind of content they want and the consumable doses that will right. actually be, be Well, I thought it was interesting,
0: being a college football fan, I thought it was interesting how uh, the Pac-12 disintegrated because their new TV plan was going to be Apple+. Plus. And right. that was so unsatisfying to people that they were not going to primarily be on uh, one of the cable channels late night that, that now the Pac-12 is gone. It's 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 After right. over 100 years, it's disintegrated. All the teams have left. I mean, or, or I guess all but two. So it, it, it looks to me like in the sports world, you have to make sure you don't move ahead of your users. You can move into the future, but you've got to take your users with you.
4: Well, you're exactly right. And I will say, you know, so... Uh, you know, I live in North Texas, but for, for a matter of about three or four years, I lived in Southern California for work and I wanted to watch the Dallas Cowboys and I wanted to watch the SMU Mustangs at the time, lose time after time. Cause we were, when I was a freshman at SMU, we were tied for last place with army. We right. were really bad at football, <laughs> but I wanted to watch my team and in California, I could not tune into any, any real channels that would allow me to watch my teams play. So, you know, digital does allow access to people that maybe live outside of specific TV markets uh, to be able to watch those teams that they want to keep up with. Um, obviously, like you said, though, you cannot just rip the bandaid and just totally just, you know, leave behind the, the consumers that you have already. Right. We've seen that with a lot of big brands to, to the state, making decisions that have alienated their legacy customer, um, but also failing to, to actually connect with the, uh, the future or yeah. younger customer that's, that's got, Increasingly more buying power. Uh, These companies have to go about this in a way that's fairly sensitive to their customer. And, you know, marketing data definitely helps with that. And you kind of pointed to the to the marketing opportunities of digital and streaming. The the data that you get from a from a digital user is so much greater than what you get from a linear user. You have a lot of assumptions and a lot of generalized, aggregated data when it comes to that linear user. But with digital, I mean, you're tracking individuals, not just right. like neighborhoods or-, or Extrapolations,
0: or yeah, yeah. That's
4: exactly right, and that's extremely more powerful to advertisers, yes. so the money obviously follows that too.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. So um, uh, I, I guess real quick final question, because we're way over time. Is this going, is this uh, standoff, this hostage crisis, uh, going to end anytime soon, or is this going to run along through probably the whole football season?
4: <laughs> I don't see this this hostage crisis lasting more than, man, two to four weeks. You know, is, is kind of what I would expect, and, and that might be even kind of kind of a long Hail Mary sort of of estimate there. Uh, this is a this is a, there's a lot of money here for both of these companies just kind of waiting, and so uh, you know, obviously as these guys get closer and closer to their next uh, shareholder earnings calls. Uh, they're going to have a lot of questions to answer from some people that are looking for a return on their investment.
0: Yeah, good point. We'll leave it there for now. Adam Roseri, always appreciate you. Thank you for coming on today.
4: Thanks, Jack.
0: All right. On our KTSA, Connecticut Quality Water Softener's Newsmaker Line. uh, We can talk about that. I want to get your votes in on the JR poll. I want to know what you think about the the judge. This is not a final decision. This is just another step in the road. Uh, But it is interesting that every single thing that works in terms of enforcing the border, is immediately struck down or sued, you know, suit filed against. Uh, it, it does make you wonder, right? I mean, every effective technique is the worst thing ever. And now we're hearing that about the floating barriers. Talk about it. We just got the breaking news that uh, there's been a setback for Operation Lone Star and those floating border barriers. A judge in Austin giving the state a week to pull those things out of the water, the state already saying they will appeal that. Bo is on the Jack Riccardi show. Hi, Bo.
3: Afternoon, sir.
4: So Afternoon. my take is I, I understand a law quite a bit, and for a federal judge to intersect into this, I understand it's a, it's a lawsuit, but it's not a law that he is opposing in this whirling. It's not a policy. It's an action. So to me, it sounds like a homeowner's uh, you know homeowner association kind of thing. It's like why why are you why why are you talking about this?
0: I'm not a lawyer either, but I think the reason it is a federal issue is because the federal government's accusation is that Texas placed these on the international boundary and the federal government is saying that's that's our department. But I, I, I share your frustration because as with HOAs HOAs will stick their fingers in a, in a problem but never make it better. They'll just object right. to what you're doing, right? Like, well, where's the solution or where's the constructive, you know, let's all, we're all in this together, right? Like, we all want our neighborhood to be better, right? But how can't, why can't we work together instead of writing me a ticket? And with, with the federal government, why is the federal government at war with a state that is effectively controlling the border? As a,
4: as a state is enforcing federal law.
0: The, but, I mean, the, both parties, in theory, should want the same thing. When exactly. the federal government does this, they, they demonstrate to us they really don't want... They want an open border. They really don't want it to be controlled.
4: Controlled by chaos.
0: Well, <laughs> open. I mean, chaos means people people get through, people walk away. And um, I, so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you make a good point, Bo, and I appreciate the call. I, I, I'm not... I'm not so hung up on the fact that it's a federal lawsuit or it's a federal judge, but I don't know how anybody now could argue that either the, the Biden administration or the modern Democratic Party has a border control policy or focus. They don't. They will get madder than a hen if you say they're for open borders. They'll, they'll sputter and fume and say, that's no, that's the libertarian. But th- it's very clear that everything that works is immediately in their crosshairs. And these things were working. lie that he told on a gun application where he lied about being a uh, drug addict. So anyway, I I don't think uh, any of us are going to be losing sleep tonight or pacing the floor with excitement that Hunter Biden is now going to finally get justice, but that's what happened there. Uh, We were talking about the the federal judge striking down the border barriers and the federal government's argument. Um, I checked during the news to make sure I was right about this. The federal government's argument is Texas can't put stuff where we operate and we operate on the international boundary. Okay, but if that's working, if that's stopping people from entering the country illegally and perhaps even discouraging them from trying to enter the country illegally, and by the way, the way the media report on these floating buoys, they sound like something from a sci-fi movie. You know, they... (laughs) <laughs> you know they're 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 reported on like they're killing machines you know but anyway if if they work and they're having the effect of controlling and limiting you know uh breaches of the border i thought we were all for that i thought in theory that was what we all want clearly it's not and um if you had any doubts before 2021 about whether there is still a consensus, like there used to be like a consensus about a lot of things. Republicans and Democrats would say different stuff, but they wanted to get to the same place, right? Like they they both wanted the same things, the same outcomes, they just had different ways of getting there. You You do need to know that because of Trump in the Republican Party, and because of the extreme left fringe, squad, you know, sort of unholy alliance of tech money and um, Antifa, and BLM, and so forth. Th- these parties are not two groups that want the same thing anymore. Yeah, they're a uniparty in a lot of ways, but um, the, clearly there's no plan to control the border. The Democrats' plan is to let as many people in and then make them sort of conquests for the Democratic Party. 210-599-5555, and I mentioned this story last hour, there's a, there's a story about how billionaires, this was in the Epic Times, billionaires have formed a company, and they are buying up land around Travis Air Force Base in California, and it looks like the plan is to build a city in which the um employees would live in homes built by the company, shop at stores owned by the company, eat in restaurants, kids would attend schools, uh there'd be solar, there'd be, you know, livable neighborhoods and habitat conservation, and the idea is we're gonna we're gonna build you a really nice house in a really nice area and you're gonna have all this safety and security, and it's the American dream, and um and we'll own everything. And uh I'm just kind of I'm just kind of blown away by the way history repeats itself because uh, this was of course a nightmare. Uh when it happened in the 18th I'm sorry the 19th and early 20th centuries. When you lived in the company town um you you lived in a in a totalitarian regime, I mean, it was not good. And, and I'm talking even about very reputable companies, companies that are, you know, part of the American lexicon, like Ford. Um, these were so abusive, and so coercive and exploitative that they were outlawed. But this is, I think, part of what we're seeing more and more of. If people are are willing to be controlled and they're willing to trade their freedom and their choice for security or the illusion of security. Um, these folks are all for it. They're they're good with it. And it's probably smart to do it in California. And it's probably smart to do it in the tech sector because those kinds of people will probably run uh, to sign up for it. But it's just funny to me because we, we know how this story ends. We've already done this. 210-599-5555. So we've been talking about that, we've been talking about the so-called espionage tourism of the Chinese. There was an interesting uh, piece recently in the New York Times that said America is an empire in decline. That was an interesting thing to read in the New York Times. But the writer of the piece was making the argument you've heard before that America today looks like the final days of other empires and um, we're we're following in the footsteps and it's gonna end the same way and so forth and so on. And I've always had the sense that I disagree with that, but I didn't really know why I disagreed with that. Like maybe I just disagree with that because I don't want that to be true. I don't want to believe that our, our best days are behind us. I don't want to believe that we're in decline. I don't want to believe that we're where Rome was at the end And so today, Rich Lowry writes in the New York Post, America has issues, but it's not an empire in decline. And he says the people that tell this story tell the Roman history wrong, and they tell our situation wrong. And so his argument is we have problems, but we're not Rome at the end, and we're not beyond repair. Do you do you agree with that? I mean, do you, it's kind of a dire question, I know, but when you hear people talk about this, are you in the camp that says, yep, it's it's over, America. It's been a good ride. It's been a good time. And or are you in the side that's on, on the side rather that says, I, I can't accept that. I don't accept that. Uh we've we're not them. We have uh a founding that's very different. We have a basis that's very different. Um, we also have their example, which they didn't have the example. So what do you think? Uh, yeah, Rick, uh, Rich Lowry says, we're not like Rome in decline. We're not the Roman Empire, the, the fall of the Roman Empire. He says, uh, first of all, he points out that the fall of the Roman Empire took a very long time. It actually took probably longer than we've been a country. But also he says... Um, We don't look like they did. We don't have armed contingents of Canadians or Mexicans uh, wandering across the border. We don't have our own military marching on our capital or taking over our bases and forts or fighting other branches of our own military, all things that happened in the waning years of the Roman Empire. Um, We don't have a constant spate of political assassinations and overthrows. So he's right that we don't literally have all those things. But I guess the question is, is that what we're headed for? And I guess I would like to think, and I would like to be in the camp that says, no, we're not. But I think the reason the, the reason I feel that way is because um, I know and you know what we are supposed to be. We have this set of ideals that if we are living up to them or even trying to live up to them, prevent these things, this decline, this balkanization, this dividing into camps, because that's what eventually what happened was Romans were not Romans anymore. They were tribal, they were balkanized. Each group lived with its own kind and foraged for its own stuff, and the hell with the rest of it, and the hell with the the general enterprise of it. We're supposed to do that. But if you don't teach that, if you mock and belittle that, if you relegate the founders to a bunch of dead white slaveholders, If you say that the Constitution is a living document that can be uh, altered, erased, rewritten any time, then it's really nothing. It's it's basically a contract that's unenforceable and meaningless. And um, you could see where we we would get to the point they were in. So maybe he's half right. We're not in the decline, but it's staring us in the face. I think a lot of people just assume that what makes us a strong country is that we have the strong military and this incredibly advanced, uh, technologically rich military. Um, But what actually has always made us a strong country, even when we didn't have those things, and even when we were not even one of the world's most militarily powerful countries, which for most of our history we were not, what we had was a powerful idea. Uh, so the, the idea is what's gonna save us, not how much we spend on the military or what we do with it. Uh, that's just, and, and, and the same thing with Rome. The, the, the collapse of the Roman Empire didn't mean that they no longer had military might or possessions. The, when the Roman Empire collapsed, it collapsed on itself. So that's what he's writing about. That's what the New York Times is writing about. We can talk about that. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. The um, mentioned this the gate crashing story: Chinese tourists engaging in gate crashing U.S. bases. Uh, this is reporting from the Wall Street Journal and other uh, news organizations. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, we hear about it, and we know we don't have the whole story. We don't know how, for example, effective it might be. We don't know how much various intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies may be on top of it. They may have their arms around it. I don't know. I don't know any of that. I can't know that. They're not going to tell me that. All I can do with with this story, I think all any of us can do with this story, is conclude that, Whatever we think the future is going to bring, whatever we hope is going to happen, China seems to know what's going to happen, or the Chinese government, I should say. I mean, I I don't know any other way to interpret what they're doing other than that they're getting ready for something that we keep hoping we will never have to do. Uh, Chinese nationals, sometimes posing as tourists, have accessed a hundred or more military bases and other sensitive sites in recent years. No cases have resulted in espionage charges. Individuals are typically Chinese nationals pressed into service. These are people that are already here and are either coerced or <clears throat> willingly participate in these uh, incidents. Most often, according to the journal, the chinese nationals are only briefly detained and then deported paper says the us believes this is an organized probing effort of the chinese government and its intelligence services but there's no reason to do it unless you expect conflict and if you are if you are as china not wanting conflict if you are wanting competition and rivalry and engagement you you're not doing this so, we may not know what we're doing about it, but I think we can be pretty clear about what the Chinese government intends. And and I, I, I don't know about you, but, and I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I, you know, grew up in the Cold War, and I watched Reagan kind of masterfully play China and Russia against each other. It just seems to me like in recent years they've come together, we've driven them together, and they've come together. China's helping them in Ukraine. China is alleviating their uh, problems in other parts of the world. They're attempting to draw India into this uh, alliance as well. So it just seems very strange to me that we're. this is like the biggest mistake you could possibly make, letting the other two most menacing and powerful countries unite. And in the meantime... You're talking about them. You you're talking about one of them like they're Nazi Germany, okay, Russia. You're talking about the other one like they're uh, a trade partner. And that that's not working, right? I mean, you can't you, you can have your own ideas, you can have your own opinion, you can't make your own reality. This espionage tourism is the reality of what China's doing, I think. It is now time
5: for...
3: Yeah. It's the final countdown music. music music Top 10 board we'll start with number 10
0: We are in the year 1979 first week of September 1979 the big movies this summer have been Rocky II, Amityville Horror Apocalypse Now. Baseball fans are heading toward a World Series that will feature the Baltimore Orioles versus the Pittsburgh Pirates. And these were the top 10 songs in San Antonio this week. In 1979, we start out at number 10 with a band from Down Under off their first Under the Wire album. These Aussies are the Little River Band. All right, we're counting down this week in 1979 at number 10, Lonesome Loser by the Little River Band. The song at number nine this week is written by a Texan. Will Jennings was born in Kilgore, Texas, wrote some very famous songs like Tears in Heaven, My Heart Will Go On. He's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he wrote for Dionne Warwick, I'll Never Love This Way Again. I think that might be my favorite Dionne Warwick song. It's so great. Will Jennings is an amazing uh, artist. He's worked with Clapton, B.B. King, Whitney Houston, With Steve Winwood, he wrote on the Ark of a Diver and Back in the High Life albums. He wrote Higher Love, The Finer Things. Uh, He's written with jazz artists like Joe Sample and the Crusaders and, as I mentioned, B.B. King and many, many other people. Written a number of songs that Dionne Warwick has recorded, including that big one, I'll Never Love This Way Again. And that takes us up to number eight. This week in 1979, she's dipping her toes in the disco waters for the movie she made with Ryan O'Neill. It's Barbara Streisand and the main event. Remember disco? Everybody had to try it, right? Even Barbara Streisand. This week at number eight on our countdown. The song at number seven uh, is an artist who had a long career uh, and performed under different names. His own real name was Bobby Pedrick. He had a hit when he was only twelve years old under that name, but he is still to this day best known for his 1979 hit. This is at number seven, Robert John and Sad Eyes. Yes. This guy had actually been out of the music business for a while. He was working at a construction site. He was approached by a record producer and songwriter named George Tobin, who remembered his earlier work in the 60s and early 70s. said, I think this guy could have a hit again. I've got some songs that I think might work for him. He wound up living with George Tobin. He kept his day job, and he recorded what would become his biggest hit, Sad Eyes, Robert John, number seven this week. Up to number six on our countdown, it's a song whose songwriters were inspired by another hit of the time, Emotion, by Samantha Sang. They liked it so well, they gave Maxine Nightingale this song right here.
5: Try. I'll always need you. I'll never leave you. I'll give me on. Tease me on I love I better be a fool with a broken heart in song
0: who never helped. Hmm. Maxine Nightingale has said many times she was as surprised as anybody by the success of this song. She really didn't think. It had hit written all over it. Our song at number five this week in 1979 is a story song. It's about a young man named Johnny who makes a deal with the devil. play pretty good
5: fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin. But I'll take your bet you're going to regret because I'm the best he's ever been. Johnny, you're up your pole and play your fiddle hard
0: the 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 great charlie daniels band and the devil went down to georgia a huge hit that was kept out of number one only by the fact that there were some other really really epic songs ahead of it which we're about to hear but this week The Devil Went Down to Georgia is at number five on our 1979 countdown. Our next song is the only ELO song to not include a string section. And the drum track on it is a loop of tape. They just loop it over and over again throughout the song, varying the speed a little bit. You'll never hear this one the same way again. It's Don't Bring Me Down. Jeff Lynn thought they needed a little more of a loud, boisterous song on the album, and so they put this one together. By the way, if you remember this song, it ends with the slamming of a door, and according to Jeff Lynn, they actually slammed a metal door at Musicland Studios to make that sound effect. That's number four this week, Don't Bring Me Down by Electric Light Orchestra. Fresh off a show at the American Airlines Center in Dallas... This weekend, and now headed for the West Coast, is Earth, Wind, and Fire. This week they were at number three. song rejected by Hall & Oates before it was recorded by Earth, Wind & Fire after the love has gone. It's at number three. And also on the road is the band at number two. They're touring with Duran Duran and they're playing the TD Center in Boston tonight. It's Chic and Good Times. I mean you can see how with good times and after the love is gone and don't bring me down it was just impossible for the devil went down to Georgia to get the number 1. So what was the number 1 song this week in
5: 1979?
0: Number 1. Wow. It was the debut single by this band from their debut album, Get the Knack. It went to number one on the charts, stayed there for six weeks. It was the number one song of the year. According to Billboard, it's my Sharona. And get this, Capitol Records had never had a song go to gold this fast since the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand 14 years earlier. Of course, it's still a huge seller. It's never gone off the radio. It was even on George W. Bush's presidential iPod back in the day. My Sharona by The Knack is the number one song this week in 1979. We'll hear more from uh, the Knack coming up later on in the show. But as we told you um, a couple of weeks ago, the Rolling Stones have their first new studio album. In other words, original music, not live uh, performance in I think 16 or 17 or 18 years. Um, It's called Hackney Diamonds. Remember we told you the story. They uh, revealed the album was coming in in the... guise of a fake glass replacement um, advertisement. Um, So we're not exactly sure why, but that was their little uh, Easter egg. And um, this is the first single from the album Hackney Diamonds. You are gonna love this song, and you're gonna love it even more when I tell you a little secret behind it. Brand new today from the Rolling Stones, this is Angry. picking up on the really strong drum line in this song and you know the Charlie Watts passed away a couple years ago Uh, on the album there are two tracks that Charlie Watts plays on because they recorded them obviously before he died but for everything else the drumming is Steve Jordan the great Steve Jordan and the reason Steve Jordan is playing the drums with the stones on hackney diamond is because of Charlie Watts he told the stones he told the manager He told Mick, if anything happens to me, Steve Jordan is your man. They go back a long way. They've known each other a long time. You know how drummers are. They all are aware of each other. And so uh, Steve Jordan has the, I guess you'd say what, like the blessing, right? The imprimatur of the great Charlie Watts on Hackney Diamonds and the first single from the Stones. And I'm sorry, I mean, that sounds... Like, as good a song as they've ever done. I mean, that, Don that's, Cooper, what do you think? That's
6: old school, Rolling Stones, no doubt about that. It, you know, how when, when, he, he has that Charlie Watts beat go up. I'm telling you. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know how when an older act, forgive
0: me for putting it that way, maybe this is a more delicate way to put it, when a more um, vintage band puts out new music, you always have, like, this sort of sympathetic ear, like, well, I, I want to like it, and uh, there's nostalgia, and hey, it's great that these guys are still, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you're you're making allowances, but you don't need any of that
6: for this song. I was reading some of the comments, and a lot of people were saying, this is much better than I expected. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. they were kind of, you know, expecting just, you know, something to, kind of a throw away song out there, because... This is a, apparently supposed to be all new songs on this album. So, yeah. But yeah. Uh, everyone is really surprised how, gr- how great it sounds.
0: The album uh, itself will be available October 20th. That's the first single called Angry by the Rolling Stones with new drummer Steve Jordan, who's still doing his other projects and plays with a lot of other people, but plays on that album in place of the great Charlie Watts. We'll hear a little more. When we do the Dish uh, segment on Friday nights, and if you haven't heard it, it's where people call in and talk about restaurants that they uh, have just been to and are giving their impression and recommendations. It's a lot of fun. We have a great time with it. You should check it out. You should call us. Uh, If you ever go out to eat at all, you'll love the Dish, and we would love to hear from you. But anyway, one of the questions um, I get is, um, you know, obviously, Jack, you you can't go to all the places that have been called in and are being called in. It's, it's, you know, it's a tidal wave of restaurants. And no, I've only been to a tiny, I guess, percentage of them. But every so often, somebody will mention a restaurant that's really well-known, that's been around, that's popular, and I'll think to myself, "Am I the only like Am I the only one that's ever been there? Am I the only one that doesn't get it or hasn't even tried it? You ever feel that way? Like everybody loves blank, but you don't really. You're not interested, or you've never tried it, or you've never wanted to try it. What is a San Antonio restaurant that everyone seems to go to, but you, or everyone seems to love, but you? Maybe maybe you have gone to it, and you're like, I don't get it. I don't get what these people are are excited about." or maybe you've just never been to i you know i don't know Casa Rio or alubies or liberty bar or whatever it is what's the san antonio restaurant that everyone knows about everyone seems to go to or love except you 210-599-5555 and i mean it could be a chain it could be any kind of restaurant any kind of price Sounds like, sounds like we're doing Friday night, doesn't it? Um, but I just—I think there, I think there's always that one person that just—you know, like I—I I, I, I guess I haven't been. Like I—I I will say for chains, the one that gets mentioned a lot that I've never been to, and it's not that I'm avoiding it, but I just have never really been motivated to go to it. Is In and Out? When they came to town, you remember when In and Out came? How many years ago was that, Don? Maybe. Five ten years ago, you could a little longer than
6: well, yeah, maybe
0: longer than maybe. that. You couldn't get near them at first. You couldn't get near them any time of day. The whole time they were open, there were lines, the drive through everything, line out the door for people standing. I mean, I wasn't going to do that. So I thought I'll just wait till things quiet down within and out, and then I'll go. And, and they have quieted down, I think, but I just have never been there. And um, so for like a chain, that would be that would be. Definitely, one of my answers would be in and out, uh but it can be any kind of restaurant. everybody goes there but you what is it two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five maybe maybe you've never been to Earl Abels, which of course is now closing uh maybe it's Liberty bar, maybe it's uh one of the you know barbecue places, maybe it's something downtown like uh the palm or 599 two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five San Antonio restaurant, everybody goes to or everybody loves except you. What is it? And you know, there's no judgment, right? We're just uh, comparing notes here. Um, I would say on the rep, people, if if you've heard the dish, you know that we get a lot of different restaurants called in and they're in town and they're outside of town and they're every kind of food. Um, and I would say this, I, I make a lot of, promises to myself when we're doing that Friday night segment people will make something sound really good and I am writing myself a note or mentally making a note I gotta try that place I gotta go there I gotta have what she's talking about and then you know it you just never get there and I'm not saying I never will but so far I never have Uh, what is a place that everybody seems to know everybody seems to talk about and it's passed you by, 210-599-5555. There's, um, I can't think of the name of it. There's a deli da- way down, Um, I want to say maybe near Sac, that we get a lot of calls about. Somebody will know what I'm talking about. It's got an Italian name. It's like a one-word name. And um, we've had calls on that over the years, and I've always said I've got to get in there. And I've never been there, and now I can't even remember the name of it and I guess that's the other curse right like if you don't m- mentally or physically notate you're you're gonna hear about all these places and they're gonna flit into your you know in one ear and out the other uh literally or figuratively, but we'll talk about that we'll take your calls on that at two ten five nine nine fifty five Fifty-five, and then um, can I jump in
6: real quick? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. we're getting some callers. I think they're a little confused. We're having some callers call in, a places that they've been to that they don't like, and they don't understand why everyone's raving about. But that's not what you're asking, though. You're it could be. I mean, you
0: could either have tried the place and it just didn't, you know, send you. Okay, but it's a popular place. Like I, I, you know, I, I will say, and I'm not putting them down, but. I've never really gotten the appeal of Bill Miller's. You know, like I'm not, if you love them, keep loving them, But I never quite could figure out what the big deal was. Maybe I came to town too late for the heyday of Bill Miller's or whatever it is. But So it may be a restaurant you have tried and other people seem to love way more than you. Or it could be that everyone talks about such and such and you've never been there. So I'm kind of giving you both ways of coming at it, 210 599 55 Fifty-five. So we'll do that. We'll take some calls on that. Um, mentioned uh, earlier on the, uh, in the last hour, we were talking a little bit about, um, uh, obviously, music and the Rolling Stones and counting down 1979. Um, I, I read an interesting uh, article uh, last night about music on the radio. And I'm going to share that with you because obviously we're not a music station, but um, th- there's some really interesting things happening with radio and uh, music on the radio, and it kind of ties into what we just did with the 1979 countdown. So we've been kind of talking today about media, right? With the poll question about cable and streaming, and then we had the uh, the hits from 1979, and I was reading this article about how across the country, the most successful radio st- music radio stations the the most successful radio stations are news talk radio stations. They're the ones that make the most money. They're they're powerhouses. They're keeping a lot of radio companies in business. But the most successful music stations, right now, are basically oldies stations. Stations that are playing you know the hits of let's say the 80s and 70s city after city there is one or more stations that are dominating that uh that town that community in the ratings so this article was talking about why that might be and <clears throat> one of the things they said was that uh when you when you hear music that we now call classic hits or classic rock or oldies, this is both welcome to us who remember it, but it's also new to young people. So like people my daughter's age, they hear the 80s, they love the way it sounds, but it's also new music to them. They've never heard it before. And so those two factors, this article said, combined are making those stations successful. Okay, maybe. That could be true. It could be true. But I also know that people my daughter's age don't use radio to hear music. They stream it. They make playlists. They, you know, they they don't... They, my daughter, I don't know if my daughter's ever turned on a radio station. I, I know for a fact she never had a radio in her room. Unless she was, like, hiding it, like, you know... <laughs> She was the the French resistance, and she had to hide it in case the room was searched. But I don't think so. So anyway, I started thinking about this, and I started thinking back to when I was in music radio. And and you know what I think might be happening with these stations that are playing basically the Stones and Fleetwood Mac and Foreigner and Jefferson Airplane and Cream and Chic and, you know, the Bee Gees? You You know what I think might be happening? Not always, not in every case, but some of these stations have what we would now call curators. So what I mean by that is they're not only playing this very strong music, but it's being um, tailored and selected to match the city that it's in whether it's in Los Angeles or it's in Chicago or it's in Detroit or it's in Boston and then there are people on the air who can talk a little bit about it which you can't get if you stream music it's curated it's you've got a you've got a guide you know you can go to a famous place and you can just walk around and look at it and have a great time but sometimes you want to take the tour right sometimes you want to sign up for the guided tour or you want to put on the little earbuds and and get the narration that goes with that location, you'll get more out of it. If you go to a famous place, you'll learn more about what you're looking at, and it'll walk you through that that experience. That's what these people on the radio are doing. Now, we used to take that for granted. If you're over a certain age, those were called disc jockeys, right? They knew a little bit about the music. They could tell you stuff that was going to happen with that band or when that artist was gonna come to your city. Um, But then it got complicated, you know, you started getting into a lot more talk and chatter and contests, and I remember, for example, when I was in music radio in the 1980s, we would have these very complicated contests where we would have to, Don Cooper, you probably remember some of these, It was difficult to explain (laughs) all the things that went into this contest. I worked at a station that gave away, it was called the Power Trip, and it, it was, you would, if you won the grand prize, you went to the Super Bowl and the presidential inauguration in January of 1989. Both of them, you won them both. But to win them, you had to hear three songs, and you had to hear them in order. And of course, we were only gonna do that one time over the period of like three months. And if you think that sounded complicated, what I just said, imagine me having to explain it in even more detail and naming the songs, and you had to do that like every half hour. So I think eventually they decided, oh, the disc jockeys are talking too much. So we're going to not let them talk. But when they took away the ability to talk, they shut you up about the music. They shut you up about the artists. You couldn't talk about Fleetwood Mac or Naked Eyes or Wham, but you still had to talk about the contest. Because the contest was how we got the ratings, and the ratings is how you get paid. And then eventually, radio stations that play music realized, hey, you know, I don't think we really even need the disc jockeys. And I don't know if you've noticed, but... A lot of music radio stations now don't have any people or any live people. And they're even saying now, which I think is crazy, maybe we'll use AI voices. Well, all of that, of course, is fine if people just want to hear the songs. I just want to hear Prince. I just want to hear Chicago. I just want to hear the Beatles. Okay, but what if you are... New to that music. What if you're 22, and this is essentially new music for you? What if there was somebody that could just sparingly brighten it up and give it a little context, or what have you? And so that's where I think these these stations that are starting to do well, they've figured out that, hey, this is actually, there's actually some value in curating the music. We know people can get these songs without us. They don't need us to get these songs. See, when I was in music radio, you probably did not have a record collection anywhere approaching the size of your average radio station's rotation, the songs they actually played. I'm not talking about the music library in the back. I'm talking about the the songs we actually had in the studio that we were actually playing. Like, at one point, I was on a station that played about 1,100 songs in the in the library it, not in the library sorry in the studio we were playing that many songs you probably didn't have all those you probably didn't own all those but today stations play a very small rotation and you have access to the entire universe you know they could they can uh they can no longer be like the gateway or the the uh admission gate and so i think I think what's, what's left, and what these stations that are succeeding, according to this article, is they're figuring out how to present it with a little value. And um, I don't know, I don't know how long it'll last, but I'd like, I think for right now, it's like everything old is new again. The original reason for having a human being to present that music is turning out to be a good thing. It's turning out to be a virtue all over again. It just took us 30 years to figure out that all the stuff we had eliminated, we had eliminated some things that were actually
6: valuable. Does that make sense? You brought back a an interesting memory when you were talking about contests that we used to do cuz when I was doing music radio and we were doing similar contests of that sort, we'd spend more time explaining the rules yes. to the contest yes. and all you could think about is that I'm putting people to sleep right now. And then and you know, and it was all written perfectly by our program director you know and you had to read it verbatim and, mm-hmm. you know yep. every word has to be read exactly the way it's written so that uh the listener you know does not miss any of the instructions to the contest itself and then someone got the idea why don't we just put it on a, a recorded promo
0: yeah well and they do that and and it's, you, you have a guy that reads it like at double speed right um but even so even when you're even if you're not explaining the official rules, if you're just explaining like the mechanism by which you win, it can't it, it's just it was too complicated. you know I remember doing it I remember th- and I was on an afternoon drive like I am now, and I remember thinking, these people are in the car i i mean how, how in the world are they how in the world are they retaining any of this? you know and you'd have a few diehard people that would that would retain it and would play the game It, it was astonishing to me how good some people got at it. We had one contest. This sounds ridiculous. I swear I'm not making this up. We had a contest. They just relaunched this station, um, and the slogan was the 45-minute music back guarantee. And what it meant was we guarantee to play at least 45 minutes of music per hour from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. I was on after four o'clock and we didn't play that much. But in the midday, in the work day, we were promising to play. So that meant you were limiting the commercials and the talk and the news. We had news back then and all that. So you're gonna get at least 45 minutes worth of music. If we played less than 45 minutes, we would pay you $1,057 because that was the frequency. Now, okay, that wasn't too hard to explain, right? We had a really cool TV commercial. They used outtakes of, not outtakes, but clips of popular music videos. So it looked like Steve Winwood and Whitney Houston and people were explaining the contest. It was very cool, very well done. But that implied that a person listening to that radio station would time the music segments. How, how would you do that unless you're doing nothing you have no job, you have no housework, you're not driving, you have a stopwatch, a pad, a pen. Who listens to the radio with a stopwatch? But that was their big gamble, that we'll prove we play more music. If you catch us not doing it, we'll pay you. And that's why I think they went off the rails. I mean, I did it, I, I went along with it. I was young, I was just glad to be there. I probably didn't think about it at the time like I'm thinking about it now. Now I'm thinking, that's insane. They should have hated us. <laughs> should have like, people should have been like, what are you people, crazy? But that's that's the kind of thing you would do. And I know there's probably a thousand other stories like that uh, in different radio markets and different radio uh, stations. But yeah, w- there'd be all these very elaborate, there'd be prize catalogs, and you'd have to listen and have the catalog In your hands, when we announced that we're playing from the uh, you know the F page and the catalog, I mean it's just, And, and so all of that is where they thought, oh, we've got to eliminate all the people and clutter and talk. But there is a place for people that kind of curate the music for you, are your are your guides to the music, like when you, I'll tell you what I think it's like, you're watching an old movie. And you're sitting next to a friend who's never seen it before. And you've watched it 10, 15 times. Once in a while, not a lot, right? Because that would be annoying. Once in a while, you point a little something out on the screen. You recognize her, she's from such and such. Or, now watch what this guy does. or whatever. That's what That's what the best disc jockeys do with the music. Just a little added, you know, something-something with music that doesn't need a lot of additions, music that stands on its own. Like this article was saying in the Los Angeles radio market, the number two biggest market in the country, six of the top ten highest-rated radio stations are playing basically oldies. So something's going on with that. You know, that's a huge chunk of a huge population of people, six of the top 10. Coming up, the results on the JR Poll. The question, powered by River City Oral Surgery, are you, when it comes to TV, are you mostly using a cable or dish service, or are you mostly streaming? I think a lot of people are doing both, right? But uh, which is it mostly or mainly? We'll find out. I love this story. It's a dog story. Who doesn't love a dog story? And it's about a dog named Scout. And Scout was a stray, a mutt, like ninety nine percent of the dogs that wind up in shelters, and that's where Scout wound up. He was at a shelter um in Bel Air, Michigan, so he had no history uh he had no medical record. They named him Scout, they knew nothing about him. He had the demeanor of an abused dog, which again is common. He had been shot at one point, so he had the scars but nobody knew the story. Uh, one night he escaped the shelter. That happens a lot, too. He got over a couple of fences. He got across a busy highway. And he went through the automatic doors of a nursing home down the road. And he walked into the lobby of the nursing home. Nobody noticed him. He hopped up onto a couch in the waiting area, the, you know, the reception area, and curled into a ball and went to sleep. You know the way dogs do where they're so still, you just don't even know they're there. They found him, they called the police, the sheriff took him back to the shelter. A few nights later, there was Scout back on that same couch in that same lobby. Somehow he had crossed all those barriers again and made it into the nursing home. The call was placed again, he was brought back to the shelter again, A couple of nights after that, Scout's back. And now the staff at the Meadowbrook Medical Care Facility has a decision to make. Because for some reason, Scout just believes that he belongs there. The administrator, Marna Robertson, says, I'm a person that looks at outward signs. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. He did that several times. It's obviously something you should pay attention to. And I said to my staff, well, he wants to be here would anybody like to have a dog? And the staff said, well, we all would. And he became the official dog of the Meadowbrook Medical Care Facility nursing home. And if you think the staff is enjoying Scout, you haven't heard about the patients, the residents. There's about two dozen who live there, and Scout has free reign. He wanders the halls at will, Lies down wherever and whenever he wishes. I want a job like that. Visits residents when the mood strikes him. He's learned how to get into rooms by jumping up and using his paw to pull down on the door handles. Seems to remember which residents keep dog biscuits in their walkers or beside their beds. Robertson says to each of these people, he is their dog. And what's so amazing about this story is, it it sounds like the kind of thing you would choose to do. But the dog chose it. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing a nursing home, a rehab should have, right? But the dog chose it. It wasn't anybody's idea. It was Scout's idea. Scout is still a mystery. Nobody knows where he came from, what his original name was, or if he ever had one, how he wound up astray. Nobody knows for sure what bad things happened to him, but it's sure that some things did. He still walks with a little bit of a cower, a little bit crooked. His tail is a little lower, even when it's wagging. He's still frightened by loud noises. He's still a little more comfortable with women than men. But Scout knows where he belongs. He knows his purpose. And it's a beautiful story in a lot of ways, one of which is we're all looking for purpose. You hear young people say this all the time. Why am I here? What am I for? And I guess we get hope that if Scout can figure it out, maybe we can too. I just wanted to share that with you. I think it's just an amazing story. It's the kind of thing that dogs do in our lives every single day. And for every story like this that somebody writes up or we we hear about, think of all the ones we don't, right? There's so many more. JR Poll results, powered by River City Oral Surgery. For TV, are you mostly cable or dish or mostly streaming? Obviously, a lot of people doing both. But it was no contest, 62% are streaming to 38% that are using either cable or DISH primarily. And again, a lot of overlap. We know that. But Thanks to everybody that voted in the JR poll. It's always available at KTSA.com. We'll have a new question when we go live tomorrow at 4. We were uh, thinking back to the top 10 songs this week in 1979, in case you missed the countdown. At number 5 was... The Devil Went Down to Georgia by the Charlie Daniels Band. Don't Bring Me Down by ELO was number four. At number three was After the Love Has Gone by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Number two in 79 was Good Times by Chic. And My Sharona by The Knack was the number one song this week in 1979. Doug Figer of The Knack was 25 years old when he met Sharona Alperin, and she became his girlfriend and they dated for a while, and it inspired a lot of songwriting. Figer recalls it was like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. I fell in love with her instantly, and I wrote a lot of songs feverishly in a short span of time. He claims that My Sharona was written in just 15 minutes, and yes, they were engaged at one point, but never actually married. Later on, Figer would say they remained great friends, and did so till the end of his life. This is the number one song from 1979, The Knack and My Sharona on KTSA. Have a good night.